0: You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland.
1: Welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, I want to look at a recent decision of the Irish Supreme Court And this decision is something of an early Christmas present for employers, because it upholds an earlier Court of Appeal decision from last year, which rejected the suggestion that employees have an automatic entitlement to legal representation at an internal disciplinary hearing. This is a decision we looked at in episode 37 of the podcast series when it came out in November of last year. So today's review is really just an update on what the Supreme Court had to add, and an overview of where the legal principles are right now following that decision. Just to explain how we've gone about the podcast today, what we've done is recapped on the earlier content from the episode 37 on the Court of Appeal decision back in November of last year, and then at the end, we've recorded new content relating to the Supreme Court decision. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last podcast. There are two particular developments I want to talk about. The first relates to the Central Bank of Ireland's proposal to introduce a senior executive accountability regime as part of an overall individual accountability framework, which would be something similar to the UK senior manager regime that some of you will be familiar with. For employers in the financial services sector, this is probably one of the most pressing issues on their agenda if you're dealing with employees and dealing with compliance. For those of you following that legislation, the update as of today is we still don't have any draft legislation. However, Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, as the minister with responsibility for this legislation, in a recent speech, gave some interesting insights into where it's going. First of all, in terms of timing, he explained that, subject to Brexit priorities, he had expected the draft heads of bill to be before the cabinet this side of Christmas. At this point, that now seems unlikely, but it must, however, mean that the draft heads of bill will come out in the early new year. More importantly, he explained that in designing the new regime, it will draw from the UK regime, and in particular, will take account of what lessons have been learned in the UK and their experience of that regime to date. He also explained that in learning from the UK lessons, we must take account of one particular difference between ourselves and the UK, and that is the existence of a written constitution here. What the minister said was, Our constitution establishes clear individual rights, such as the right to earn a livelihood and clear provisions on the administration of justice. So there must therefore be a careful balance between giving the central bank the necessary powers it needs to do its job effectively and the protection of individual employee and constitutional rights. And this is an issue that we have seen coming up in an awful lot of discussions with clients in relation to the SEER proposals the availability of injunctions under Irish law to prevent an employer from reaching a negative conclusion against an employee in breach of fair procedures and the overall emphasis on fair procedures in HR and employment law practice is very different to the UK. So I think even if we end up with a broadly similar model to the UK, the experience of running it in Ireland is going to be very different. And that's why it's crucially important and indeed welcome to see that the Minister is aware of this difference and it is hopefully going to be taken into account. The Minister also identified the SEER proposals as the centrepiece of the overall individual accountability framework, which I suppose underlines the importance that the CBI will give to it once the proposals are rolled out in due course. For those of you who are interested in more detail in regard to the SEER proposals, I've included with the email on this podcast a link to a recent speech given by Dervil Rowland, the Head of Financial Conduct from the CBI, at a Matheson client event we ran in October. As I say, it's an extremely important issue for employers in this sector, so we will keep you updated on any developments as they come through. The second change in the area of family leave I want to talk about is the introduction of parents' leave as of the 1st of November 2019. This is an additional statutory entitlement allowing each parent of a child born or adopted after the 1st of November to two weeks unpaid leave. It may be taken within the first 52 weeks of the child's birth or adoption, and if not taken in that period, it will be lost. The employee can take it in one block of two weeks or can take it in two one-week blocks. There's no obligation on the employer to pay during this period, so the only entitlement an employee has to salary is a social welfare benefit of 245 euro per week. Along the same lines as parental leave, an employer can postpone an employee's request for parents' leave for a period of up to 12 weeks in particular circumstances so if for example there are seasonal variations in work demands etc. The benefit is non-transferable between the parents and equally it applies per pregnancy or adoption as opposed to per child. So a parent involved in a multiple birth doesn't get four or six weeks leave as the case may be, it's still only two weeks per birth or adoption. As I say the legislation doesn't require employers to top up salary during this period However, what we've seen in practice is that in certain sectors of the economy, such as financial services, pharma and tech, where recruitment can be extremely competitive, employers will use benefits as a form of retention and attractiveness to make themselves all the more attractive to a candidate. And on that basis, we expect a lot of employers will actually top it up. One recent survey I saw indicated that as many as 20% of employers had already confirmed they would either pay partly or fully during that period of time. To put this new leave in context where it fits in the overall world of family leave is it's in addition to maternity leave, parental leave, adoptive leave and paternity leave. It's its own thing. It exists independently. Now, my view on this proposal is as follows. It clearly is a step in the right direction in that it's positive and it's progressive. There's no doubt about that. However, the introduction of this benefit and an earlier proposal along these lines back last summer was heavily criticised at the time as still falling far short of the mark. It is an acknowledgement by the government at least that if it is serious about tackling the issue of female retention and female progression to senior levels in the workplace, it does need to facilitate the shared burden of parental duties. And so by extending this particular benefit to both parents and introducing some degree of paid benefit around it, it is nonetheless positive insofar as for the first time at least, it extends the benefit to both mothers and fathers. So at least encourages conceptually for fathers to become that bit more involved in sharing parental duties. However, to put this in context, and many of you will have seen the coverage earlier in the summer of the decision by the ASIO to provide 26 weeks fully paid paternity leave to employees across the entire organisation, and more recently Vodafone likewise has announced a plan to pay four months fully paid paternity leave in its organisation. Likewise, in Spain at the moment, for example, fathers enjoy eight weeks paid paternity leave, Which will increase to a remarkably generous 18 weeks paid paternity leave by 2021. Again, paid by the state rather than by the employer in the Spanish case. Even as a general benchmark, the OECD average for paid parental leave is just over six weeks, so you can see how the Irish proposal starting off at two weeks unpaid is very much behind the curve, and so we clearly do have some distance to go. To finish on this point overall, and just to explain what paternity leave is then as the third benefit, Paternity leave compared to parental leave or parents' leave was introduced in September 2016 and it likewise provides for two weeks paid paternity leave for fathers or parents other than the mother in the first six months of a child's birth. Again, it's paid in the sense that social welfare benefit is available to the employee of 245 euro per week and there's no obligation on the employer to top it up. This is one benefit in particular where the tech employers have been really generous and a huge number of them do provide paid paternity leave covering the top up. Hopefully this clarifies the overall difference now between the three different types of leave and puts the recent changes in context so you can understand what they are and how they apply to you.
0: You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, head of Matheson Employment Practice.
1: Let's turn now to our main case review for today, and that's the case of Irish Rail and McKelvey. This is a case from the Irish Court of Appeal which as I say was handed down on the 31st of October last, so it's very recent. This is also the case that a lot of employers have been waiting for following the Lyons decision in the hope that a case would come along and properly consider the issues raised in that decision. The facts in McKelvey were pretty straightforward. He had worked for Irish Rail since 1999 and at the time of the case coming before the Court of Appeal was employed as an inspector in charge of a maintenance team on the Cork to Dublin line. As part of his role, he had access to a fuel card which was to be used to purchase fuel for company vehicles and company machinery. Questions were raised in regard to a number of unauthorised or excessive purchases back in late 2016 and following an investigation into these issues, Mr McKelvey was suspended in March 2017. A couple of months later, Irish Rail wrote to him and indicated that the matter was being put forward to a formal disciplinary hearing. In response, he asked that he be allowed bring along a solicitor and a barrister to the disciplinary hearing, presumably to run his defence and cross-examine any witnesses. When Irish Rail refused to permit this, Mr McKelvey went to the Irish High Court and in July of last year sought an order to restrain the company from proceeding with the disciplinary hearing until such point as he was allowed to bring along legal representation. In the High Court, Judge Murphy granted the order, but this was on the basis that it raised very serious issues for his reputation and future employment if he was ultimately dismissed as a result of this process. In reaching this decision, she specifically referred to a decision in Burns and the Governor of Castlevary Prison, an Irish Supreme Court decision from 2009, and she went through a number of criteria that were outlined in that decision, applying them to Mr McKelvey's case. On the first of these, she referenced the gravity of the charge and the potential penalty. She agreed that this process may well lead to his being dismissed, with a consequent impact on his future employment prospects. She also agreed that the allegations on outcome could very significantly impact on his reputation. She accepted that multiple points of law would arise in the disciplinary hearing, and that Mr. McKelvey would not have the necessary capacity to run his own defence. On the same point, she agreed that the facts in this case would be quite complex, covering a number of transactions over a number of years. I think the process actually will be looking back as far as 2013. She went so far as to say that it would be ridiculous to expect Mr McKelvey to deal with the complexity of facts involved without the benefit of legal representation. She accepted also the point that it was not yet clear what the particular allegations were or what process the employer was following. And... While she agreed that involving lawyers in the process directly would inevitably result in the process being slowed down and further delayed, in her view the downside to the employer of this was quite limited because Mr McKelvey was already on suspended leave. Overall she felt therefore that given the complexity of the case it did warrant legal representation and she granted an order requiring Irish Rail to suspend the process until such point as they were prepared to allow Mr McKelvey bring along his solicitor and barrister. Rather than accept this outcome and proceed with the process on that basis, Irish Rail appealed the decision to the Court of Appeal. And they appealed it on a number of grounds, and let me just run through them because they are relevant to the Court's ultimate analysis. First of all, they explained that the High Court decision was premised on an assumption that Mr. McAlvey would be unaided in this process, which was not the case. He had the direct benefit of an experienced trade union representative to fight his corner in the disciplinary process. And the same representative was already representing two other employees so was quite familiar with the facts and the process they also argued that the process was not uncertain or undetermined in that it was very clear the company's disciplinary procedure was contained in his contract on the company handbook and he had also been provided with a copy of it at the start of the investigation included in this was confirmation to mr McKelvey that if he wished he could call and cross-examine any witness. In the process. A further ground of appeal was that the company's disciplinary procedure was entirely in line with the Labour Court's Code of Practice on Disciplinary and Grievance Procedures, which in Irish employment law and HR practice is considered the standard or the benchmark as regards the principles of fair procedures. Most significantly, Irish Rail argued that the facts of the case were actually not that complex at all and were quite straightforward. It was not something that would require technical specialist knowledge, so as such there was no need for him to require legal representation. They also made the point that the vast body of case law, certainly up until the Lyons decision, had all indicated that the right to legal representation at an internal disciplinary hearing should only be permitted in exceptional circumstances, and that there was nothing exceptional or unusual about Mr McKelvey's case. It was pretty straightforward. One last ground of appeal was, even if the allegations against Mr McKelvey could potentially lead to a separate criminal prosecution, it didn't automatically follow that he was therefore entitled to legal representation at an internal disciplinary employment hearing. Let's have a look now at what the Court of Appeal actually had to say on this. And the judgment was led by Judge Irvine, who gave the decision on behalf of the three-judge court. Before getting into the facts of Mr McKelvey's particular position, Judge Irvine went back over and reviewed again the decision in Burns, and that was the Supreme Court decision I referred to before. In this particular case, it concerned two prison officers who were facing serious disciplinary charges following incidents that had arisen in the transportation of a prisoner from the prison where they were employed in Roscommon to a hospital in Galway. In that case, they had both argued that given the gravity of the allegations against them, they were likely facing dismissal. And on that basis, they should be entitled to legal representation at the hearing. They won in the High Court, but on appeal to the Supreme Court, Judge Gagan found that there was nothing particularly unusual about the facts of their case, and accordingly, legal representation should not be allowed. The general principle of the Barnes decision in a nutshell is that legal representation should be the exception rather than the norm, and that if the facts of a case are straightforward and not overly complex, such that an employee would not require legal representation, well then an employee has no entitlement to legal representation. The Burns case also adapted into Irish law a number of criteria which were identified as a non-exhaustive list, but a list nonetheless which employers and courts should be considering when looking at the question of whether or not to allow legal representation at an internal disciplinary hearing. To run through them quickly, the are as follows. Firstly the seriousness or gravity of the charge against the employee and the potential sanction for the employee, which we now know should not be given undue weight in this process. Secondly, whether the process is likely to raise any points of law. Thirdly, the capacity of the accused to present their own case. Fourthly, whether the process is likely to raise any procedural difficulties such as could result in an injustice for the employee. Fifthly, the need for reasonable speed or efficiency in concluding a process, and then sixthly, the general concept of fair procedures, or the need for fairness. Judge Irvine then looked at the Lyons decision, and to use her own words, noted that it had departed to a very significant extent from the principles set out in Burns, insofar as Lyons seemed to be now suggesting that employees enjoy a general right to legal representation at disciplinary hearings without any particular qualifications or restrictions on when it should arise. Looking at these two extremes, she identified Burns as the correct legal test, so inherently overruled that part of Lyons that deals with legal representation insofar as it might have suggested employees can avail of legal representation even if it's not in exceptional circumstances. She then went on to apply this test to Mr. McAlvey's case. And in a nutshell, what she said was that there was nothing unusual, special or exceptional about Mr McKelvey's circumstances. And on that basis, he should not be entitled to legal representation and overturn the earlier decision. To go through her analysis of the criteria, what Judge Irvine said was as follows. Firstly, on the seriousness of the charge of the potential sanction, what she said was the fact that the allegations could lead to a separate criminal charge or prosecution against him was not of itself significant. Her view was, the same point could be said in many disciplinary hearings where an employee is facing an allegation of theft, dishonesty or assault. Similarly, even if it did result in a separate criminal prosecution against him, the outcome of the Irish Rail decision, whatever that might be, would be inadmissible in the subsequent criminal trial, so it should not in any way impact on his right to fair trial against those charges. Secondly, on the potential for dismissal coming out of this disciplinary process, she said again that that was hardly exceptional or unusual, as this is often the case in a disciplinary hearing. In fact, she pointed back to the Burns case and noted that in that decision, the two employees were making the very same point, that they were likely facing the dismissal, yet the Supreme Court held that there was nothing exceptional or unusual about that such as to warrant legal representation. On the gravity of the sanction, Judge Irvine felt that that should actually be irrelevant. The real question for the court instead should be on the facts, whether or not the facts are so complex that he would require legal representation to be able to properly conduct a defence. To give an example, and I suppose this is my example rather than the judge's, if it was an employee facing allegations that raised technical or specialist issues of financial services practice or regulatory law, you can see how an employee would require a specialist legal representative that is familiar with the law and can run the nuances of the argument for the employee before the disciplinary hearing. Conversely, if the facts are straightforward and not complex, there should be no need for legal representation. On the point being raised by the employee as to the impact on his future employment if he was dismissed, She felt that again the same issue arises in every dismissal case, so there was nothing unusual or exceptional about this. On the complexity of the facts criteria, she felt that there was nothing in the facts of Mr McKelvey's case to indicate that they would be complex. It came down to a small number of spreadsheets containing data which Mr McKelvey already seemed to be familiar with and understand, and one three-page written statement which was effectively his evidence to the investigation committee. As such, she felt the facts were quite straightforward and didn't require legal representation. She also laid a lot of emphasis on the fact that he had access to and had the benefit of an experienced trade union representative. So he was not without assistance in this process. She also made note of the fact that the company's own procedure was very much in line with the Labour Court's code of practice. So she accepted the ground of appeal on this point as well. She also specifically referred to the fact that the Code of Practice is silent on the issue of legal representation, which she read to mean the Labour Court envisaged these type of proceedings being run on a daily basis without any need for legal representation. To elaborate on this further, she noted that even if it turned out an issue arose at the disciplinary hearing, which in hindsight would have benefited from legal representation, that he had full right of appeal on this so could bring in legal representation at that point if there was risk of an injustice being committed. Let me read a short passage now from the judgment which I think very accurately sums up the tone and logic that the court took to this decision. What the judge said was as follows, while an employee facing a disciplinary inquiry in respect of alleged misconduct may be at risk of inter alia dismissal from their employment and significant damage to their good name, it should nonetheless generally be possible save in exceptional circumstances for such an employee to obtain a fair hearing in accordance with the principles of natural justice without the need for legal representation. It is of course mandatory that all disciplinary inquiries into misconduct alleged against an employee be carried out in a manner which is fair and in a process that meets the requirements of natural and constitutional justice. However, for the process to meet that standard, it should not, save in exceptional circumstances, be necessary for the employee to be legally represented neither in my view should it be necessary that the procedure to be deployed should ape the type of hearings with which we are familiar in criminal or civil proceedings before the courts. And then at a later stage in concluding the judgment, she added that while it is true that Mr McKelvey faces a disciplinary inquiry which could lead to his dismissal and which has the further potential to impact on his future employment prospects and reputation, in this regard he is no different to a very substantial percentage of employees facing allegations of misconduct in the workplace. In my view, the allegation of misconduct made against Mr McKelvey is a straightforward one and I am not satisfied that he has identified any factual or legal complexities that may arise that he should not be in a position to deal with adequately with the assistance of Mr Cullen, an experienced trade union official. So to conclude, overall the judge felt that there was nothing exceptional, special or unusual about Mr McKelvey's case, the facts were straightforward and accordingly he did not require legal representation. So, in this, she overturned the earlier High Court decision and inherently overturned a significant part of the line's decision insofar as it dealt with legal representation as a general entitlement. On that basis, Irish Rail were free to proceed with the disciplinary hearing without having to allow Mr McKelvey bring along a solicitor or a barrister. The question, as with all of these case reviews, is what does this mean for you as advisors to employers? In my view, this is an exceptionally positive and helpful judgment for employers on a number of levels. At its most immediate or basic level, it's exceptionally positive because it overturns the line's decision on the issue of legal representation. Following this decision, it's a lot easier to say to employees, you are not allowed legal representation at a disciplinary hearing unless it is in exceptional circumstances. By reaffirming burn as the correct legal test, it makes it much easier for employers to manage the increasing expectation of employees when it comes to legal representation. My own view, looking at the judgment and looking at the way the court elaborated on the criteria in Burns is that arguably it now sets the bar as even higher than I would have once understood the Burns test to operate. Often when a new judgment comes out like this, that is helpful to employers, we would look at it from the perspective of employees as well to preempt the type of arguments that they may raise. And the one argument an employee could try to raise in order to distinguish this case or to limit its application is that the Irish Rail case only really applies to employers that recognise trade unions. And for an employee that doesn't have the benefit of trade union representation, this decision is irrelevant. But I'm quite confident that that line would be incorrect. Because when you look at the judge's comments about lines... What she said was that Lyons departs to a significant extent from the earlier legal tests set out in the Supreme Court decision in Burns. In other words, the principle in this decision is of equal application to employers whether they recognize a trade union or not. It's a general point. As I mentioned at the outset, our advice to employers this time last year when Lyons came out was not to rush into expressly adapting your disciplinary procedures to allow for cross-examination and legal representation because we knew it would only be a matter of time before a strong decision came out that properly rebalanced or at least considered these issues. For those employers who unfortunately did adapt the procedures, it will be very difficult to roll back on this because once you have conceded this type of facility to employees, it's hard to take it out of your written procedures, even if the law would actually allow you to take the position if you were starting from scratch. On a more general observation, the judge's comment that internal disciplinary procedures do not have to replicate or rape civil and criminal proceedings is also extremely helpful, particularly when it comes to managing the increasing demands of employees and their lawyers on the standard of fair procedures that they expect employers to follow in internal disciplinary procedures. An internal disciplinary procedure at the end of the day is not a criminal trial or not a civil trial, and this judgment confirms that. The only shortcoming in this decision to the extent that there is any is that it doesn't expressly deal with the cross-examination point that came out of the Lyons decision. And that's because it simply didn't have to. Irish Rail had already agreed to allow Mr. McKelvey to cross examine witnesses at the hearing if he wished. To be objective about this, the large body of case law that was examined in the, the Lyons decision and a couple of other decisions that came out around that time on the same point all indicated that employees do enjoy a right to cross-examine witnesses at the ultimate final disciplinary hearing. So I think even if this decision had dealt with cross-examination, it probably wouldn't have overturned it in the same way that it overturned the point around legal representation. However, there's a very practical and positive point in this. By overturning the Lions decision on the issue of legal representation, it has substantially undermined the effectiveness of an employee's right to cross-examination. The reason I say this is because in practice, even if an employee is allowed the right to cross-examine a witness, in most cases they were only ever going to exercise that right if they were allowed to bring along a lawyer to actually run the cross-examination. That's because in most cases, employees won't have the necessary skills or experience to run an effective or successful cross-examination of the witnesses. To look at it another way, any witness who is concerned about being cross-examined in a disciplinary hearing is going to be a lot less concerned about being cross-examined by a colleague than they would the idea of being cross-examined by that colleague's solicitor or barrister. And I think in practice what will actually happen is most employees, if they're not allowed to bring along a lawyer, simply won't engage in any cross-examination. Overall, as I say, it's a very strong, clear judgment for employers. And as a result of this decision, I think we can now consider Lines a 12-month anomaly and no more on the issue of legal representation. When you consider the very small number of cases that make it this far to the Court of Appeal on these type of narrow points, this decision and the Burns decision are likely to remain the standard for quite some time into the future. And so following the Court of Appeal outcome, Mr McKelvey in turn appealed that decision to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court heard this case earlier this year and the judgment was delivered on the 11th of November 2019. The legal arguments before the Supreme Court by both Mr. McKelvey and Irish Rail were broadly the same as all other stages. And in short, the Supreme Court very robustly affirmed the Court of Appeal decision. It rejected the suggestion that an employee has an automatic legal entitlement to legal representation at a disciplinary hearing and agreed that that should only be allowed in very exceptional circumstances. The main judgment from the court was read by Chief Justice Frank Clark. And he opened his decision on the basis that the Burns and Castleby decision from the Supreme Court in 2009 re-established the principle that legal representation should only really be allowed in the most exceptional circumstances. And in his view, he identified that as the correct starting point. He then also explained that he saw no reason in the case law or on the facts before him to depart from that point. One of the main legal arguments from Mr McKelvey was that if he was denied the opportunity to bring along a lawyer to an internal disciplinary hearing, he was at a disadvantage because he wouldn't be able to put forward his case in the best possible light. And as a result, the process was therefore unfair because he wasn't getting his entitlement to fair procedures. The court dealt with this as follows. The court agreed that there were cases where having a lawyer come along would help the employee put the case forward in a more positive or more effective manner. But the court fundamentally disagreed that it followed therefore that a process that didn't allow an employee to do so was unfair or in breach of the employee's entitlement to fair procedures. The court went one step further than this. The court expressly acknowledged that an experienced legal representative will be more effective to an employee at an internal disciplinary hearing than a work colleague, but again refused to accept that a process in which that occurs is fundamentally unfair or a breach of the employee's right to fair procedures. The point from the court was, so long as the employee overall is getting the opportunity to put forward an adequate defence through adequate representation, well then that was sufficient to meet the requirements of fair procedures. The court then also dealt with the question of, at what point in a disciplinary process should an employee be applying to the High Court for an injunction to restrain it? Should an employee apply when a breach is about to occur should he apply when it has just occurred or should the employee be expected to wait until the conclusion of the process and apply at that point. The court referred back to an earlier Supreme Court decision from 2017, the case of Rowland and Unpust. And I'll read a quote from the decision because it's particularly useful here on this point. What the judgment says is as follows. The process should only be restrained where it is clear that things have gone sufficiently off the rails such that no decision at the end of the process is likely to be sustainable in law. And then further on, the judge also adds, The regular halting of a disciplinary process because of the possibility that something might have gone wrong on merely the basis of an arguable case potentially operates to defeat the orderly conduct of employer and employee relations and thus lead to a material risk of injustice to the relevant employer if an injunction is granted but the claim ultimately fails. However, requiring a process to continue in circumstances where it is almost inevitable that the result will have to be set aside at the end also creates a real risk of injustice. To me, as an employment lawyer practicing in this area and dealing with the obstacles that disciplinary hearings throw up, this is a hugely beneficial comment for employers because it sets out a very clear message to employees about the risks of applying too early in a process. That in effect, an employee should allow the employer continue with the process and see if ultimately the employee will be given the benefit of fair procedures. So I imagine that there will be scenarios where employees who want to look for an injunction will be advised against it based on this comment because of the risk of applying too early. Applying these legal principles to the facts of the case, what the court concluded was as follows. On the facts before the court regarding Mr. McKelvey, the evidence involved in his claim, and the procedures to be applied by the trade union representative and Mr. McKelvey himself, the court felt they were all relatively straightforward nothing unusually complex compared to any other disciplinary hearing scenario. On that basis, they felt that the trade union representative available to Mr McKelvey within Irish Rail would be more than competent and capable of looking after this process. And as such, he didn't need legal representation at the hearing and his application failed. The court also made the comment that an internal disciplinary process is not the same as a criminal or civil trial and that employers are not expected to reach the same standard. And let me read out exactly what the judge said on that. It should be recalled that an internal disciplinary process such as this is not a criminal trial. While the process must be fair, the formal rules of evidence or the procedures which govern either criminal or civil proceedings do not necessarily apply. And again, in practice, this is a very beneficial and helpful comment for employers, because what the judge is saying is, Even if the way an employer runs a process internally is not ideal or is not always best practice, it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to meet the standards required of a court in criminal or civil proceedings. And I think that judgment or that part of the judgment will be very helpful in dealing with the complaints that employees and their solicitors will raise. The court also agreed with the logic from the Court of Appeal that just because the allegations Mr McKelvey was facing were likely to lead to dismissal if proven against him that he had an automatic entitlement to legal representation. Likewise, the Supreme Court agreed with the Court of Appeal that just because the same allegations could possibly lead to a criminal offence or a criminal prosecution against him, again it didn't follow that he had an automatic entitlement to legal representation on that basis. The way the court looked at this was, even if it led to a separate criminal prosecution, that process will be judged by the standard of proving the allegations beyond all reasonable doubt, not the balance of probabilities that you would apply in an internal disciplinary process. So in other words, it shouldn't have any undue influence on an ultimate criminal prosecution. In concluding his judgment, the judge also made the following comment. It is well settled that a court should not restrain a disciplinary process prior to its conclusion unless it is clear at the stage when an injunction is sought that something has occurred which is sufficiently serious and incapable of being cured, so that there was no realistic prospect that a legally sustainable conclusion could be reached at the end of the process. To me, this is one of the most helpful comments in the overall judgment for employers, because what we have here is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court saying that even if an employer makes a mistake somewhere along the way and arguably breaches an employee's entitlement to fair procedures, that the process is still not inherently doomed or fatally flawed from that point onwards. Or in other words, that the employee still has an opportunity to mend their hand so long as they can show that the employee ultimately got the benefit of fair procedures before a final decision was made in regard to the allegations against them. This is an obstacle or a challenge that employees and their solicitors will very often raise where there is an error or a breach along the way, So it's extremely useful now for employers to have this comment there to show the employer can still mend their hand as long as they do so in time before they make the final decision. To wrap up on this, the question we always like to ask is, what does this mean for you as representatives of employers in Ireland? Everything I would have said about the Court of Appeal judgment, about it being a very strong judgment for employers when it came out last year, applies equally here. The only difference is this is an even stronger judgment because it's a judgment from the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice himself. The additional points around the risk of an employee applying for an injunction too early in the process and the opportunity for employers to mend their hand where there have been errors in a process are also extremely helpful. So overall, I think it is a Christmas gift for employers. The one question that is left unanswered, however, in this judgment is what would happen if the employer didn't allow trade union representation also? This question didn't come up in McKelvey because Irish Rail did allow for trade union representation. However, as we know, the vast majority of employers in Ireland don't recognise trade unions and wouldn't allow a trade union representative to attend an internal disciplinary hearing. The Supreme Court didn't deal with it, but we have seen two recent WRC decisions, both of which suggest that if an employer refuses to allow trade union representation, that it can go to the integrity of the process and it may be the basis upon which an employee can challenge a conclusion coming out of an internal disciplinary hearing. That's something we'll watch and we'll keep
0: you updated on. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email Brian, that's B R Y A N dot Dunn, at Matheson, dot com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.